How is the sound? I've been told I'm the most soft-spoken of the teachers, which would surprise my mother. (laughs) Louder. Can you crank it up, Carrie? How is it now? More? More? More. In the back, how is it? Okay. All right. Now I'll have to try not to be too enthusiastic. (laughs) So let's start. So the Buddha talks about practicing mindfulness internally and externally. So I'd like to start this talk by offering you the opportunity to practice mindfulness as you listen to a story that I'm going to tell you. Okay? So turn your awareness around. Let yourself come to presence. And this is a story about something that happened a few years ago in which I was a participant. So... I'm in my mother's kitchen. My mother is 91 now. I'm in my mother's kitchen. And my younger sister is there as well. And so she has her computer out and she's showing my mother this video of my mother's great-granddaughter, the first great-grandchild, who is about... mm, maybe 10 months, a year, right around that range. So it's my sister, my mother, and I. My mother's watching this video. So my grandniece is in one of these contraptions that kids that age have that's got wheels on it, and it's got a little tray. And the tray has little electronica that lights up. And the way the deal works is if you slap one of these lights, then a song comes on. So Jenny slaps one of these lights and on comes Ticket to Ride by the Beatles. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket, and Jenny's rocking it out, rocking it out. Her eyes are closed. She's swaying, she's swaying. She's jumping up and down. She's jumping up and down. She starts pushing the thing around the room, and then she's slapping the tray to keep it going. And my mother's looking at this, this thing, and my mother is, like, cracking up. She gets really happy and is enjoying this sight of Jenny enjoying the music, enjoying the movement, enjoying the whole experience. And so I'm there, and I'm watching my mother and my sister who are having this happiness, this enjoyment at watching Jenny rock it out 
and I'm feeling happy at my mother and my sister being happy at Jenny being happy. (laughs) So as you hear this song, this uh, story, as you listen to this, did you notice what your body and mind felt like? Because not for sure, but it's quite possible that you had the experience of mudita. Empathetic joy or appreciative joy. This very, very uh, beautiful state of mind. So this talk is going to be about this particular quality, what it is, how we can cultivate it, some of the challenges in the cultivation of this particular quality. So a place to start is to say that metta is the source of this. Metta is the source of all of the Brahma-viharas, all four of them that, that we practice. And of course we've been getting the metta instructions in an ongoing way and uh, now we've cut over two afternoon sessions where we're emphasizing karuna. And just in the same way that karuna recognizes the suffering of others, resonates with the suffering of others, is metta, attuning to that particular experience that we're having or internally or others are having. Mudita is the same quality of metta that's turned towards a recognition of the happiness and well-being of others, of their good fortune. And it has a distinct feeling tone to it that you just felt. So if you were, for instance, going to compare and contrast your remembered body-mind experience of mudita and compassion, would you say that they felt different? So there's this wonderful capacity we as human beings have to access these particular states. They're naturally occurring states. Metta is a naturally occurring state. Compassion is a naturally occurring state, and so is mudita. And the wonderful thing about these naturally occurring states is that we as human beings can choose to, can undertake to, actually grow and develop these particular states in our mind until they become what the Buddha talks about as being immeasurable. Meaning they have no limit. They don't exclude any aspect of our own being. They don't exclude any type of being, any individual. Everybody is inside the circle. And in uh, in order to be able to do this, it takes the cultivation of particular intention, the intention to generate metta as the foundational state, and then the intention to gradually, gradually, gradually learn to include more and more of what we habitually hold outside our goodwill. So the amazing thing is that we can learn how to do this. 
when I talked about metta earlier, I talked about developing uh, a world, an internal world of goodwill and love in which we can then reside. And just in the same way that we can reside in this mind-created world of love with metta, we can develop and reside in a mind-created, a heart-created world of mudita. Not a bad place to be. So mudita has some interesting aspects to it because as we know, the foundational uh, teachings of the Buddha start with the first noble truth, there is suffering. And yet, with the cultivation of mudita, we're turning the mind to an appreciation of joy, of happiness, of well-being. So how do you reconcile that? So even though the Buddha's wisdom teaching points to the fact of the three characteristics that uh, John referenced in his talk, the truth of impermanence, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, uh, the truth of not-self, even though we recognize that nothing that we can experience, which is conditioned, can be completely satisfying, the fact of the matter is, and this is, this is our own direct observation of things, there is happiness, right? There's happiness in sensory experiences. There's good fortune in the world. There's relative health. There's wholesome relationships. There are wholesome states of mind. There's ease in the body. There's ease of heart. So there are places of relative happiness. And it's important to recognize them and important to acknowledge them because the Buddhist path is not about uh, saying, oh, it's all just dukkha, it's all just, you know, it's all just discarding what's good in the relative world. But rather it's about cultivating what is skillful and what is wholesome and having wise enjoyment of what is pleasurable, what's uplifting, what is part of a good human life. So with mudita, we really turn the mind to registering those kinds of human experiences. So there is wholesome joy, there is health, there's happiness, the pleasures of the senses, there's worldly success, there's good fortune, there's well-being. And even though they don't last forever, they're part of the texture of life. If you remember, the Buddha rejected the path of austerities and nihilism. So this particular quality of mind really is a pointing in the direction of the legitimacy of relative happiness. And we know that people can be happy and that good things can happen to them and for them. And we can share in this particular kind of happiness by letting it register in an approving way in our own mind. This practice of mudita is turning towards the happiness of others with the wish that their happiness or good fortune continue.
So to talk a little bit more about the definition of this quality, this quality mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A, sometimes it's translated as sympathetic joy or empathetic joy or sympathetic happiness, appreciative joy, altruistic joy. So it's about finding happiness in the joy or success of others. So in order to practice this, we have to let the happiness and, and well-being of others actually register. Right? We have to perceive it. We have to recognize it. We have to allow the mind uh, to see this, to turn to it, and in a certain kind of sense, endorse it or cheer it on, which means that we have to approve of this, approve of their happiness. So the Dalai Lama is often quoted as saying something like, six billion people, six billion chances for happiness. So there's a number of different ways you can interpret that. But one way that you can view it is that he's saying we have the capacity to resonate with the happiness of every living being. We can develop a mind that can extend mudita universally and in the process take in the joy and happiness of all beings. So let me give some everyday examples of mudita to help illustrate what it looks like in real life, not just in the Abhidharma. So, say you have a friend who has a birthday coming up. And it just so happens that you're aware of what particular things that they like to eat, what things are special to them. So, you undertake to prepare or for arrange such a meal for the friend for their birthday. And then you offer it to them and while they're eating it you watch right you watch their pleasure and enjoyment at that experience so another example might be watching your son get married to someone who is good for him or hearing that a friend got a job that they really needed. Don't you want to just like high-five them? Yes, you got it, yes. And how wonderful that is for us when our success is met with that kind of reaction, right? Seeing someone who uh, has worked in the community, in your community, finally get recognition that they deserve. Somebody who's been plugging along in the trenches very selflessly, taking care of the neighborhood, doing the right things uh, for the kids, 
bringing people together. And finally, somebody sees all the devotion, all the time that's been offered, all the love and care and responsibility that's been carried, and recognizes them. Hearing somebody's health issue resolve and their anxiety turn into relief. Somebody who's been waiting to get those test results and you know they've just been on cycles of worry and anxiety and then they get the news back that they don't have to worry about it. Right? It's not compassion anymore. Maybe it was compassion when they were worried. Now they've got the permission not to worry. <sighs> Happiness. Watching your niece score a big goal in a soccer game. Right? The kid that always worried about what would happen in the clutch, would they be able to do it? And yes, they do. Right? So you all probably can, could come up with many examples of this from your, your own experience. A student surpassing their teacher because of the offering that the teacher has made. I was watching a documentary uh, a number of months ago about the integration, racial integration of the public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, which was basically done under federal court order here in the States used to be segregated schools by race, by law. And there are a number of young people, uh, African-American young people in Little Rock, who came forward from the community with the support of the community to be the first children who would go to this school, uh, which had formerly been all white. And there was one woman in the community, in particular a woman named uh, Mrs. Daisy Bates, who really stood behind the children and was their key practical and emotional support and was the person who tended to be most uh, the strongest intermediary with the public and the media and all the rest of it. So these children got to go to school and they wound up graduating from um, this particular high school. And they all went on to college after that. And she was interviewed at, at this point after they had gone to college. And uh, the reporter said, well, so how are the children doing now? And she said, and you could just see her move into the state, and she said, they've all taken up their higher education. And the, the most beautiful thing of this was Mrs. Daisy Bates herself had only been able to have eighth grade formal education. But she took mudita, she took pleasure, she took pride in the accomplishments of uh, 
this generation of children who were able, because of her effort, to go further than she was ever able to go. So, you know, this is a really beautiful and a really powerful quality. And you probably noticed for yourself when you were feeling into the story and kind of feeling into the examples that I was given, the particular examples I was giving, that this quality is happy, joyful, uplifted, expansive, connected, generous, rejoicing. There is enough. It's not a shortage mentality. So happiness is there externally and internally with a recognition and an appreciation of the upside of things, that there is an upside of things. So when we're strongly in this state, we can actually feel like we're uh, kiting or drafting on the happiness of others. Do you know what I mean by that? Kiting or drafting? You ever see a uh, flock of birds flying through the air? There's the, the lead birds and they're kind of breaking, breaking the surface of the air and the ones who are coming behind are getting some advantage of the currents that have been generated by the ones in the lead. And with Modita, we can feel like that sometimes. Someone is being happy and then we're kind of drafting along, catching the high. So when we're like that, our mind isn't comparing our state to anyone else's. But it's enjoying the well-being of the other and experiencing well-being ourselves. So you can tell, you know, this is like the you-go-girl mind. Where we're ratifying, we're endorsing good fortune. So there's no separation here when it's like that. But we're feeling the same joy that we're seeing. Our sympathetic uh, neurons are firing away. So if you're going to talk about some things that actually support mudita... Remember I said, it's rooted in metta, so it's rooted in goodwill. And generosity and gratitude is also part of this. Because a mind that recognizes its own resources sees that it also receives things from life. It, it doesn't take the position, well, others have things, but I don't get it. I don't have anything. Right? There has to be some sort of sense of some internal resourcing or some internal richness for this state to be possible. So there's rapture and delight. And rapture and delight support mudita. And then, of course, mindfulness, because there's something in this about recognizing the state of another in order for mudita to arise. As with all of these Brahma-viharas, of course, there are near and far enemies to this state. So, the near enemy to mudita is kind of interesting. Because you could say it's uh, overly exuberant. And so the mind's gone from being happy, 
for instance, that the local basketball team has won the championship, to going in the street and setting fires in the trash can <laughs> and turning over the cars, you know? It's like it, it takes it several cranks too far. So a kind of ungrounded exhilaration that doesn't have any mindfulness or any equanimity present in it, right? So this is the state from which you wake up sleeping in a bathtub. Okay, let's put it that way. So, you know, whole movies have been made about this, this kind of experience, and maybe you've had your, your own version of this that often involves too much champagne, but that's the way that goes. So that's the near enemy, over-exuberance, over no mindfulness, no groundedness, and just kind of get carried, carried away. It turns into this. <sighs> yeah. Trouble. So the far enemy has a number of different versions. So jealousy, envy, and the craving they stem from. So somebody's getting something or has something and that recognition stirs up a comparing mind and or ill will and or craving, right? As I said earlier, in order to practice mudita you have to recognize somebody's got something good going on. And it's interesting to consider that it's, uh, mudita is actually the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas to practice. Now you may or may not find that surprising. I mean, given how happy we all were kind of thinking of, not all were, but some, some people were <laughs> thinking of those examples, right? And how it felt in the body and the mind. So what is it about this particular acknowledgement or recognition or practice that makes it hard. So let's start with an acknowledgement that we share certain tendencies with animals. We are a large mammal. So consider what's been going on with the turkeys lately. Consider the turkeys. All right, you may have noticed that a number of the male turkeys have been trying to present themselves in the most favorable way (coughs) possible. (coughs) Have you noticed this with the, you know, puffing up of the chest and the spreading of the wings and the strutting around, right? Okay, so they've been working it to get the attention of the lady turkeys. So and probably to intimidate their rivals. So, we have some of this, right? So we're not so different. I mean, we do compete for mates, we do compete for food, for opportunities, for status, and things like that. So, have you noticed that you can even have competitive feelings on retreat towards other yogis? Have you noticed this? Oh, I I had a yogi who, who used to you come in and and she would she would go like this. She would go, "Oh, he's so slow. <laughs> he's so mindful. He's so slow." 
<laughs> right? That's the slowest one, and then there's that one over there who looks like he has the, he or she has the, the deepest samadhi. And that one seems most interior and least distracted as they move through their daily activities, never making eye contact. So we notice, we compare. We're always doing this thing of ranking ourselves as uh, better than, the same as, or worse than others, right? So to practice mudita, you have to turn your awareness towards someone else's happiness and good fortune. And that comparing and contrasting mind can arise really strongly. Various forms of aversion and attachment can arise, and they can be quite painful and quite strong. So then we can go into a cycle where we feel embarrassed by this, or maybe we feel like, God, I'm so petty. Right? You see the uh, opening up of additional hindrances in the mind. So I want to give some examples of particular hindrances and how they can arise in the mind in noticing others' happiness and and well-being. Because to be able to recognize these things is the first step to bringing mindfulness to them, right? That's the first step in working with any kind of hindrances to actually recognize when it's happening. So the first thing is Judgment of what makes another happy. So this is an interesting thing. You you might recognize that somebody's happy, but what they're happy about is not your version. So examples of this is, why would they want to live in Barrie? (laughs) Or... You're going to Branson, Missouri to listen to country music on your vacation? (laughs) Or, you know, let's see, this guy spent five years using toothpicks to make a scale model of Manhattan. (laughs) Why? Why would someone do something like that? Right? But really, you know, as long as it's not unwholesome, it's their thing, right? Can, they, can it just be okay that that's the way they find it and even though the Vedna wouldn't be there for you, can it just be okay? Okay. The second is uh, mana, M-A-N-A, comparing. Um, what does she or he or they have compared to me? They've got more than me already. They don't need any more. Why should they get that? Like like they're already topping me, man. And then they get some more. This is, right? Then there's uh, a third would be dislike of the person. Okay, there's unpleasant Vedana there uh, in relationship to the person. So there's a lack of metta. So basically, you don't want them to be happy, let alone for their happiness to continue. 
<laughs> right? So maybe you don't take it as far as like to actually wish, you know, harm on them or anything, but okay, as far as it like getting better and staying, it's like it's just a, it's just too far to take it. Right. So meta meta shortfall in that particular case. Then there is uh, resentment, which often is bound up in competitive thinking. This is the kind of crab in the, the bucket syndrome where the energy that could go towards developing the condition for conditions for our own happiness go instead towards undercutting others. So, you know, an example of this would... Oh, I know. This a classic example. This this happened to me once when I got I got a job, and I met somebody who knew me but didn't know me well. wasn't you know an acquaintance, not a friend. And um, she said, "What are you up to these days?" And I said, "I just got this job." Da 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 da. And she stopped and she said. Why didn't they hire blah, 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 blah? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I don't know, why don't you ask them? <laughs> but it was a classic case of that, you know, leveling, leveling the, the field there. Then there's something that's closely related to that, uh, envy. Zero-sum thinking. Nothing I ever do will get that reaction. Where it's actually painful to see the happiness, well-being, or success of others. And it's very unpleasant. The Vedana is unpleasant when you see it. So an example of this might be, you're single, you've been wanting to find somebody permanent or mm, semi for <laughs> for quite a while. So you get invited to a wedding, and there you are as your your single self, and then you see the happy couple, you know, getting married, surrounded by friends and family, and everybody is so happy for them. But your internal experience is, ooh. You ever had an experience like that? It's not uncommon. So, this can especially come up clearly in situations where you recognize uh, correctly that somebody has a privilege that you don't share. So I know uh, members of the LGBT community, myself being one of them, has had to practice with this at weddings for quite a while. Right? So if you really think about what the experience is, it has been in the past a little bit like getting invited to a college graduation of somebody from a school that doesn't take your kind, right? So it can be a very difficult, painful thing. So then you have to really do the, the mudita generation thing to get it moving in the right direction so you actually can be happy. Now this is changing for many in our community 
with the extension of marriage equality and things now. But um, for a period of time it was hard. So now that the right to marriage is being extended more universally, then all our straight friends get to practice mudita for us <laughs> as we go forward and enter into public ceremonies and, and, and claim our legal place. So another way that um, an obstacle can arise is through what you might call avarice or stinginess. I kind of think of this as dish guarding. You ever notice or had a, a canine companion who had a thing about their food dish? I don't know if cats have this. Cats just take what they want, don't they? But they have a thing about their dish. So if anybody gets near their dish, even if there's nothing in their dish, they're like, <laughs> right? Dish guarding. So this is all about holding on to the stash. So you don't want anybody to get anything that your own self doesn't have because maybe there won't be enough. So you can see that's really clearly coming out of shortage mentality. That somehow if there's joy over here, then the supply is going to run low. And but as we've seen <clears throat> with the practice of mudita, that there's actually a potential for multiplication. It's not like if somebody has it, you have to get less. And then the, the last thing is disconnection due to lack of interest. So there's some people that say, I don't know anybody who's happy. <laughs> Do you know anybody who's happy? I don't know anybody who's happy. Okay, so in this case, you may be looking for something that's too big or too global or too unconditional, you know, something that really uh, lights up. Maybe it doesn't need to be that big to actually be something that you could recognize as someone's well-being or good fortune. So even though they may not recognize their good fortune or their happiness, you may be able to recognize it in really simple ways. So things like uh, apparent relative health of body or mind or professional success, ease of well-being, not having to scramble too hard for money, positive or skillful or wholesome aspects of their personality, some kind of way they've overcome difficulty, having a network of friends and family, these kinds of things. So these all illustrate that if we incline our mind in the direction of recognizing good fortune, we can usually find something there. So those are some of the, some of the obstacles, some of the possible hindrances to the uh, cultivation of this aspect of mind to its furthest extent. And now I want to spend a little bit of time framing... Uh, a discernment piece in relationship to mudita. Because there's a lot of ways that people can be happy. So, 
mudita is part of the practice of the Eightfold Path. So it's both part of wise effort in terms of the cultivation of, of wholesome states of mind, and it's also part of the, the second step on the Eightfold Path, wise intention, be, which involves the cultivation of non-harming and metta and compassion and the other Brahma-viharas. So it's right there in the path. Now we need to understand in order to, under, to appreciate the Buddhist teachings that they need to be read together as a whole. Right? So none of it is standalone. It all relates back to the totality of the teachings, in particular the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So what this means is that we're practicing mudita within that context, and that means that the happiness we seek to rejoice in shouldn't be related to unwholesome states or to violate basic sila. So, for instance, you could say that may you continue to avoid paying child support? That would not be mudita, right? Or um, may you continue to enjoy the profits of despoiling the earth, okay? So that's not mudita. May you continue to increase your compensation by dropping your employees' health insurance. This is not mudita. But, you know, clearly, even for these individuals who do unskillful things, which would be all of us, actually, but even for individuals who do unskillful things, there is an opportunity to practice mudita if you're aware of something that's a source of happiness and well-being for them that is wholesome or at least morally neutral, right? Like maybe they're a good husband or something. Um, So you could direct the wish towards this particular source of happiness and well-being. And people that you morally disapprove of would probably be in the difficult person category when you're doing these practices. So there is, just like with the other Brahma-viharas, there is a traditional order in which you would practice these uh, teachings. So the first person you would normally direct mudita towards would be somebody that the Buddhist scholar uh, Buddha Gosa describes as an affectionate friend who laughs first and then speaks afterwards. So, in other words, somebody who's got some joy, somebody who's a happiness spreader. So, if you have somebody like that, lucky you. <laughs> That's where you would start, right? Somebody that just makes you feel good to be around because they're always the one that's generous and how they approach other people and encourages them and right compliments them, helps them, reassures them. That kind of person would be a good person to start with. Somebody that you have, to the extent you know, rather unambivalent ap- approval towards. Right? So then the next person that you would work with would be a benefactor, and you can see why. Right, Somebody who's done something for you that you can recognize. 
then a neutral person, then a difficult person, and then all beings. So that's the usual sequence. So we have one more day where we're going to work with compassion. Tomorrow we'll do that, and it will be, uh, we'll be working with all beings then. And the day after tomorrow, we're going to start with mudita. So tonight's talk was uh, a preview for you all, and uh, hopefully a somewhat experiential exploration of this particular quality. So even though it's all dukkha, it's not all dukkha. So let's just sit for a moment and let that settle down. May we expand the range of our own well-being and joy through the appreciation of the known well-being of others. And may their happiness and well-being be a cause and condition for the arising of wholesome states May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings. <laughs>